Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hey, welcome back everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. Today I'm really excited to be interviewing Dr. David Flusk, who is a pain physician and an etiologist practicing in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's been providing clinical care to patients with chronic non-cancer pain for 10 years. He completed his medical degree at Trinity College Dublin and postgraduate studies at Memorial University and the University of Alberta. Beyond the clinic, Dr. Flusk is actively involved in pain research. He currently holds two CIHR grants with his group and is published in the Journal of Pain, the British Medical Journal, and Health Psychology. Dr. Flusk is an associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University and is actively involved in medical education at the undergraduate and postgraduate level. He is currently the lead reviewer on the Association of Faculties of Medicine Curriculum Development Team in response to the opiate crisis. And this uh, project actually was born from the Opiate Summit that uh, occurred in 2016 in Ottawa. I did attend that summit and was just moved by the passion and the commitment of individuals who are participating in that summit, both people with lived experience as well as those who have professional expertise. Dr. Flusk is a reviewer of one of these projects that was born from that summit. So there is a a slight focus on opiates, but it's also a focus on pain and chronic pain in particular. So this is a project that is funded by Health Canada and will see a chronic pain curriculum made accessible to all medical undergraduates nationwide. He is also the director of the Atlantic Mentorship Network for Pain and Addictions. Dr. Flusk has been actively involved in cannabis-based medicine for eight years and holds a particular interest in its role treating chronic non-neuropathic pain. So welcome, Dr. Flusk. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I am, you know, I'm finding it challenging. Uh, both at work and at home and, and and with friends. It's like someone flicked a light switch, right? It just changed overnight. I was thinking today because I, I was um, talking to a friend of mine and I remember just reading articles in the BBC because I'm a bit of a compulsive um, BBC uh, reader yeah. and uh, reading about coronavirus and thinking, oh, yeah, well, there's just some funny stuff on cruise ships and uh, on the other side of the world and yeah. just, you know, moving on to the next story. And then all of a sudden it was just part of our lives. And yeah, uh, yeah. It started one day I was driving home from work and my wife called and said, the kid's school is closing today. <laughs> and then it just, you know, all came at us, right? Yeah. Learning how to work remotely overnight, uh, learning how to homeschool my six and 10 year old. Yeah. Um, big challenges. There's almost, I had this conversation with someone else before. It's, it's almost like you're going through a period of mourning. Uh, you're mourning for the life that you had before. Mm-hmm. And, and the, ch- the change is very drastic. And, and so we're trying to, even, even though there's a lot of insanity when you're in the workplace, because there's so much attention to trying to change protocols, keep everybody safe. And there's just been information overload, like your things are coming at you like crazy. And what I've been finding since they're doing the destaging, I don't know if you guys are doing the destaging now where you're trying to kind of get back to some semblance of normal in terms of doing OR cases and things like that. Are you guys doing that now? Well, not yet, but we're it's we're we're discussing it. They're talking about doing day surgeries starting on Monday in our place. Um, I don't know how they're going to get back into surgeries. I'm not sure if if Newfoundland is experiencing uh, the same thing that we're experiencing is that there's so much fear in sending patients to nursing homes that you know over a third of the patients in our facility now are alternate level of care and adult protection. And the the policy came out that that no one is moving for at least 60 days. 
employees from the acute care setting to the uh, long-term care because they're doing so much restructuring before they actually send them back in those environments. And I thought, oh my God, how are we going to do surgeries? How are we going to do all the things that we need to do? Um, And also admit people that are coming through the front door that need acute care. I'm not sure if that's happening in Newfoundland. I know it's it is. Uh, we we have, um, from what I understand, uh, just at a public health level, a very, very strict and slow approach to the reopening. We're doing uh, alert levels. I don't know what the, what the terminology is over in Nova Scotia, but um, our government's called alert levels. And we're going from uh, an alert level five, which was you know our lockdown and progressing through alert levels down to an alert level one. Uh, and regardless of how well we're doing, the alert level uh, will be uh, 28 days long. So we've now gone 15 days without any new cases, uh, but we're staying in alert level four. So I think they're being very methodical. And and within these alert levels, they have, you know, public responsibilities, uh, guidance regarding public spaces and gatherings, recreational activities, and then healthcare services. Well, you know, I'm so grateful Um, for an integrated healthcare system uh, that we have in Canada because there can be that communication, you know. I look at what's happening and and just reading a little bit about Brazil and uh, in some of the states in the U.S. and I'm just cringing. I, I just can't, can't imagine working in that space in healthcare. I know it's 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 frightening. I, uh, I again going back to my uh, my love of reading the BBC News. Uh, I, I look at what's happening in the U.K. and in the United States and reading some of these stories and I, it's just it it's another world. It, it's just it, I, I'm thankful. Uh, and grateful that it's a world that I'm not living in right now. Um, you know, so when you ask how we're doing, I, I'm okay. You know, yeah. looking at these other people in other jurisdictions, uh, I, I feel for them. Um, it no. must be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, exactly. To work in those environments. So, uh, from a pain clinic perspective, how has your practice been disruptive in in Newfoundland? Well, right now, um, even in this alert level four, the pain clinic is is closed. Um, mm-hmm uh to to any kind of you know face-to-face uh interaction we we don't have any procedures going obviously uh, but i've been doing virtual care um and i have to say the first two weeks of doing virtual care was just completely surreal for me mm-hmm. uh you know i tried to do um video or uh, telehealth based consultations and, and that worked okay um we were having issues with bandwidth and uh, there was a large delay I would be talking and then I would stop and then 10 seconds later the patient would hear me and it was just Mm -hmm. frustrating from that technology perspective. So I moved to phone calls, which I found more efficient, but still you don't have, you know, you don't have that uh, interaction that you're used to patient, but um, I'm working through it and it's the best I can offer. And I'm I'm very quickly learning what online resources are out there for chronic pain patients um, for pain and mental health and, and advising my patients that way. Yeah, the interventional stuff, I think, is a big part of what is missing in. So patients who live with Mm -hmm. chronic pain, I find they have strategies and routines that they use to kind of keep their pain manageable so that they can kind of live day to day. And they don't have access to those. So they don't have access to the kind of work that you do, you know, physio does or even acupuncture or any of those things. And and that's made it very difficult for many of the patients that I've connected with, um, uh, especially with the, the distance stuff. Yeah, we, we use a lot of Zoom, uh, which I like, actually. I don't know if you okay. have done much Zoom. We're not allowed to use Zoom here for patient interaction. Yeah, it's around the privacy stuff, eh? Yeah, we're only allowed to use a program called Jabber or, or the phone. So Interesting. I wish we could use Zoom. I think it works a lot better than than, than, than Jabber. But uh, yeah, the, the, the interventions are difficult. I, I don't know um, how much of this you've seen, but 
I, I had one patient this week uh, who's chemical coping with his mm, opioids because yeah. he relies on his interventions. Yeah. Uh, and now without them, you know, he, he was very forthcoming and said, you know, Dr. Flusk, I'm using double the right. opioid that I should. And uh, he's on long acting. And, I, you know, I kind of jumped out of my skin and said, OK, I, you know, I have to make a case to the healthcare authority on an emergent basis and bring you in. And they did let me. But I, oh, I have perfect. to tell you, I had to argue, argue and argue so many people to make a case for this man. Uh, wow. and, and, and once I said, listen, you know, there could be an overdose on our hands. That's when they dropped their guard and said, bring him in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, I mean, nobody's got the playbook for this. This is new for all of us. And, you know, I, it, it's no. almost like we've kind of yeah. gone to one extreme and what we need to be able to do is to say, okay, what did we learn from that experience? You know, obviously we want to keep everybody safe. We want to be able to do the work, but there is, I mean, the other piece that I, cause I, I have a palliative care hat as well. And um, now mind you, they have been a little bit flexible with how we allow families in uh, but then again, it's only one family member at a time. That's been about the saddest part for me, uh, especially in the eMERGE when we have really bad outcomes and families are not allowed in. And so that ability to connect families by social, uh, like, you know, iPads and things like that is, yeah. you know, is one way we're doing it. But it is heartbreaking to see that. And I think initially the the whole reason why we did that was to limit the amount of PPE that was being used. Um, but I think what we may start to see is a lot of stockpiling and trying to get resources up so that we don't have to go through that again, where families are, are really in these really sad situations, for sure. It is very difficult. I actually lived that myself two weeks ago. We lost a family yeah. member that palliative care. And uh, yeah, it was one, one person allowed in. Um, and fortunately, you know, now that we've been, you know, uh, without any um, new cases, um, I guess because I work in the hospital, uh, one of my colleagues who's a palliative care physician allowed uh, the three of us uh, or three family members in um, the patient. Well, my family actually underwent the MAID procedure. Oh. Um, so we were allowed in for that as, as a group, which was really, really um, kind of them to allow us to do that. Uh, and I think that the only reason why wasn't because I was a physician in the facility, was, but was because we're, we're progressing to a, a lower alert level. But I know when we were and full down. It was just um, devastating for families. Oh, I mean, you don't get that time back. That is something that I, I always tell my colleagues and families that, you know, oftentimes we don't change endpoints, we define them. So, you know, people are going to die from different reasons, but it's it's how we support families, how we define that moment that that impacts that family as well as ourselves for the rest of our lives. So it's how we define Absolutely. that time that becomes so important. Well, I'm really sorry to hear about that. What drew you to anesthesia? Yeah, thanks. So how do I make that a short, I, I, I'm thinking, how do I make that a short story? So <laughs> um, that, that, that defining moment when I decided I was going to go into anesthesia is, is, is a, a vivid memory for me. Um, almost like it was yesterday. I, um, I did all my education in the UK mm. um, and I took on a summer project because uh, I thought that I was going to be uh, an orthopedic surgeon or a plastic surgeon. Uh, and I, I'm glad I'm, I, I, I didn't become one because uh, I don't think I'd be very good. <laughs> but uh, at that time, that's what I thought I was going to do. And I, and I was with my best friend, fortunately, uh, in med school. We went out to Trinity College in, in Ireland together. Uh, took on this summer project where we were going to do some um, a dissection uh, of cadavers. Uh, for an orthopedic project. Anyway, that brought us to uh, to England for the summer. 
And at that point um, in my life, I was probably in better shape than I am now. And I was I was going and, and running frequently. And anyway, I was in the stairwell of the residence at the hospital, uh, getting ready to go for a run. And this uh, guy comes by me and he, I'm six foot five and he he must've been about six foot seven. And uh, he he said, excuse me, in this in this very distinct South African accent. Now my father was South African. So the height and, and the accent just triggered me to initiate a conversation, quite a social uh, person. And we started talking and he was an anesthesiologist that was there on locum and he invited me to join him and uh, I took him up on that offer and I was hooked. And so yeah. that was the uh, the defining moment for me. And yeah. I, I loved the physiology, uh, the procedural aspect, the pharmacology um, was really my strong point and still is. Uh, and, and so that's that's how I got into anesthesia. And um, as an international medical graduate in Ireland, I applied to the match and that brought me to Newfoundland. Are you, are, what is your background are, are, in terms of where are you from? Where are you from, mother? <laughs> I see, I was in Newfoundland uh, yeah, for 12 so I'm years. A, I'm a Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Newfoundland, come from away. A CFR, uh, yeah. yeah, born and raised in Toronto. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you're a true CFA, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> I, I am. You know, or up I along. From, you come from you up know, along. <laughs> up, up along, yeah. Upper Canada. So I was I got born and raised in Toronto. And then right after high school, like literally two weeks after graduating high school, my father shipped me off uh, to, the, to Europe for my education. And uh, I, I was out in, in Europe for a decade. Wow. And then came here, so it was a bit. It was a big change. People say there's so much similarity between Ireland and Newfoundland, and there is in terms of the landscape. But yes, uh, yeah. in terms of the population density, not. I was living downtown Dublin. Oh yeah, so it was a culture shock. And then I got into residency and, and met my wife, who is from a small, uh, as they say, around the bay town here yeah. in Newfoundland. And the rest is history. Yeah. You know, when you go, I was, uh, initially I worked in Port of Basque and kind of moved my way up into Cornerbrook and then end up in St. John's. I actually did my medical degree in Newfoundland, but there's a small little community in around Stephenville's called Jeffries. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. I'm, it, I, I am. Yeah. It's, it's like unbelievable when you drive into this community in terms of the sheep and the landscape and these big cliffs. I mean, I, you think you're transported to someplace like Ireland or Scotland. It's just, it's unbelievable. But uh, I love Newfoundland. Yeah. Newfoundland people are so unique. It's a, it's one of the most beautiful provinces. It's a very distinct kind of geography and uh, the people are just amazing. It is. Amazing. I still have some uh, friends that uh, still stay in touch with me. They're so, uh, they're so good to me. They're just, uh, but just a wonderful, wonderful experience for me living in Newfoundland. People, everyone should uh, see Newfoundland, uh, even visit some of these absolutely incredible parks uh, and the history around those parks are just phenomenal. Um, Gross Morn and I'm trying it to think is, of yeah. the other one that's close to St. John's there. That's um, Terra uh, Nova. Terra Nova. Oh, there's Terra Nova yes. and there's Pippi. Yeah, yeah, they're they're all beautiful, and it, yeah. it is. I, you know, I will move on to to the reason why we're here today. But uh, you know, those those guys I grew up with in Toronto. Uh, there's five of us friends since a uh, very young age, and and when they first came up to Newfoundland, they couldn't believe it. They're like, you know, like you said, yeah. they were transported from you know urban Toronto to to yeah. Newfoundland, and, and uh, they made the comments like they weren't even in Canada anymore. Right? Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of people don't realize how big. Newfoundland, like they think they can get off the Port of Bass Ferry and drive to St. John's. And I said, yes, bye. But that's like 11, 12 hours of driving. <laughs> you know, it's a long drive. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, they don't really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, the geography. Yeah. So the reason I, I wanted to reach out to you, because I think I'm so jealous of this particular project, but I want to learn more about it. So from what I understand is that 2019, uh, the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada developed a partnership with, what, 17 medical schools to develop a curriculum for future physicians in the diagnosis and prevention of pain. So you are part of that right. group that are developing that. So so tell me about this project and how you got involved. So I, I got involved um, haphazardly. I, I I guess the AFMC reached out to all the schools and were looking for uh, you know subject matter experts at each of the universities. And so, so uh, I got a, an email and then a phone call from the um, academic chair uh, at Memorial Anesthesia and saying you know I, I think you know this is def- this got a, a view on the opioid crisis or was generated out of the opioid crisis and recognizing the need for uh, pain education. And I think you're the guy for it um, uh, from our facility. Um, so I was nominated that way. And then it just it kind of snowballed. And then all, all of a sudden, these phone calls started coming in and these emails and will you do this and will you do that? And and the end result was me being a subject matter expert, um, as well as a, a, an overall reviewer for the, the whole uh, and its content. So it, it uh, turned out to be quite a big project. It was a ton of work. Uh, and that's still ongoing. Um, mm. So the AFMC uh, was supported by Health Canada and they developed this, um, what they call the AFMC response to the opioid crisis uh, is the title of a curriculum, but it is a comprehensive chronic pain curriculum. Okay. So, and what, what is the, what is it built on David? So the, uh, so how does it, um, how, how does it lay out? Is it looking at core competencies uh, around pain or is it a very specific kind of focus? Is it more focused on, on sort of OP prescribing or uh, what does it look like? One might think that it does have, you know, quite an opioid lens. Uh, there, there's 10 topics. Originally, there was going to be uh, seven topics. And as this, you know, morphed and we worked through it, we came up with 10 topics. And these are based on the Medical Council of Canada, core competencies, learning objectives, and the CanMeds rules. As subject matter experts, we were asked to come up with the core competencies for the curriculum. And, uh, you know, we're not well versed in, in those uh, as, you know, clinicians. Uh, so... Uh, that's when we reached out to the Medical Council of Canada and said, hey, you know, can you can you kind of step in here and help us to make sure that these competencies are all in, in line with what uh, what's expected? The project turned out to be this math project with so many players. But uh, as subject matter experts, we came up with the 10 topics um, and bringing us back to what you were saying before, you know, is this deeply entrenched in, in opioids? Um, I'll just go through the topics with you if, you, sure. if you'd like. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. Uh, so topic, yeah. So this is going to be delivered as a, as a spiral curriculum. And Queen's University uh, are the ones who are storyboarding uh, the curriculum for us. And uh, they're superb at doing uh, this work. And I'm excited to see right now we finished the curriculum and it's gone through its various reviews and it's gone off to Queen's for storyboarding. And it's going to come back to us as subject matter experts and reviewers uh, one more time uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, you know how they're going to bring the the topics to life so topic one is the public health perspective number two is core concepts in pain number three is core concepts in the management of pain topic four is uh, pathophysiology of pain and pharmacology opioids number five is opioid stewardship topic six is opioid stewardship and palliative care topic seven is the safe disposal of opioids topic eight is opioid use disorder 
Topic nine is management of opioid use disorder. And topic 10 is cultural and legal considerations for enhancing confidence. Oh, interesting. There is, there is, seems to be a fair bit there on the opioids as well in, in terms of looking, how long there, would there the, is, and no, no, how long is each one? That- yeah. I'm just wondering how, what, what, what each, uh, each component, how long would it be? Is it is sort of de- developed probably just with a some visual and some workbook kind of content, or so it's it's all going to be online, and like I said, it's a spiral curriculum, so you can jump between uh, topics as you work through each of them. From what I saw as a lead reviewer, as we went through each of these topics as they came back from the SMEs, they're about you know anywhere between thirty-five and fifty odd PowerPoint slides plus some question material, you know, sample questions, activities to go off and, and learn. You know, each each topic would probably take a learner about an hour to go through. Topic two and three, the core concepts in pain and the core concepts in the management of pain is about 150 PowerPoint slides in total. So it'll take a few hours to go through that. Wow. Yeah, that is quite so, a few. Yeah. <laughs> it's important for me to say too, that the schools don't necessarily have to take each one of these modules and incorporate it into their program. What we've done is we've developed this as a comprehensive curriculum and said here it's available and incorporated into your curriculum as you see fit you know to fill the gaps that you might have so your target is pre-licensure is that right is it primarily physician or are there other disciplines that are part of that target audience no so 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 right now this was developed uh, for undergraduate medical education so it's targeting the uh, pre-clerkship and clerkship years okay uh, there, uh, there is talks of taking this to a postgraduate level uh, and even to a CME level, but uh, that fund, we still haven't gotten funding for that. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, I know that the International Association for Study of Pain, their core competencies are talk, talk about them as being sort of interdisciplinary. So I know U of T has done something uh, right. where most of the, yeah, their programming. Do you ever see this kind of a project sort of linking with other professions at all? Or It's very focused on the undergraduate medical education. And I know looking at them, I think it was Joe Watson that wrote the IASP uh, curriculum, correct? Uh, yeah, Judith Watson. Yeah, she's out of U of T. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, that, that curriculum is very interdisciplinary, and this curriculum unfortunately is not. And and I recognize the need for the interdisciplinary curriculum, but we needed something for the medical schools. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've got a, a, a my background is nursing as well, and we had zero training uh, in pain management, which is crazy when you think about, you know, how your day to day work. I mean, it's well been recognized that the the training in pain and our education in pain has been really lacking uh, in healthcare. So this is so uh, overdue. It's it's crazy. So it's uh, it's really good that uh, you've had the opportunity. And I th- so how many uh, how many individuals are involved and and what sort of um, backgrounds do they come from? Oh, there are so many people involved. And, and as we work through the project, um, you know, I don't have a lens into all the key like the players and the people involved as a SME and reviewer. Uh, but you know, there's people from uh, all the schools that the undergraduate deans were involved, folks from Health Canada. There were people from the various departments of health. Uh, there was a there was a, a huge amount of people involved in this. Did but, you have uh, anyone with the lived yeah. experiences contributing at all, David? Uh, people who would live with pain? Yeah. So. Uh, we took the content and we had it, um, our original plan was just to have it reviewed by other subject matter experts. And, and that, you know, that would only give a very biomedical lens on things. So 
again, you know, this project evolved as it was going on, as we recognized our own gaps and, and needs. So we had, we did, to answer your question, yes, there were uh, patients with lived experiencing, lived experience, sorry, providing reviews. So we provided these patients with the uh, curriculum once it underwent its, its various reviews. And that's now with those patients. And we haven't received that back yet. Mm -hmm. I'm, 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 once it's storyboarded, uh, from Queens, they're going to receive it, then um, we'll get their feedback. We're also having students. Um, we had six medical students from around uh, from across the country that volunteered to be reviewers. Um, again, once it's storyboarded, they'll receive that and we'll, we'll wait their feedback. We also have um, a lady by the name of Marsha Anderson in Winnipeg who's looking at the content from an uh, Indigenous perspective. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Looking at different populations, that's really important as well. Um, one of the one of the things that I think is, I know that there are lots of uh, materials out there, but I do a lot of work around the pain self management piece, and I've always said that if you had access to online curriculum around pain, even for the general public, because I find many of the concepts you know, the, the, even the average person, it's important to understand how that pain system works, you know, not bringing in a lot of the neurobiology, but, but some people are very much interested in yeah. that kind of thing as well. And I know in the pain self-management, we do spend a lot of time sort of telling, showing, not telling, showing patients, you know, how your pain system works and the function of that pain system. And when it starts to get dysregulated, what's actually happening there, like that kind of material, I think would be really helpful for, even for the general public, not just even for us as healthcare providers. And, and, and it will be available. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the aim, the FMC is going to provide um, a hosted solution online um, and that will provide free universal access for anybody. That's great news, actually. That's great news to hear that. I know that yeah. we're always looking for content, even, like I said, with the pain self-management program and uh, whether or not there are some good resources that we can use as well and direct people to those resources, I think would be really helpful. I, I think it's great that they're going to make it available. Yeah. Yeah. So when do you think this is all going to happen? Once it's storyboarded and it comes back to us for a final uh, a final look uh, and we make any changes that um, uh, you know are necessary, it's going to then go out as a pilot. So the pilot's being run through the UGMEs, um, uh, the CFMS, and the FMEQ in Quebec. Uh, and it's open to 170 undergraduate medical students. Um, we're hoping to recruit 10 medical students per school, including Quebec. And the pilot will run from August to October of uh, 2020. And then we'll get the feedback from those students. And a report's going to be compiled and brought to the AFMC for review. And any content, uh, any changes to content will be made then. And then the official launch is going to take place in January 2021. That's that's great news. That's actually not that far away. I mean, it's it's great that the platform is a digital platform online, especially during the time of COVID. So <laughs> there's no... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it just makes it so much easier for sure. Well, listen, is there anything yeah. else you want to add, David? I'm, I don't want yeah. to keep any more of your time. I know you have you have a uh, dinner guest tonight. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Just uh, getting together with a friend now that we're allowed to have uh, what they call the double bubble. We can have two households that uh, uh, are allowed to uh, socialize. So, no, that's great. Thank you for having yeah. me. And uh, It's going to be interesting when we all look back at this time and just look at, look at it from a historical perspective as well as the terminology. People are saying, what is a double bubble? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for taking the time. I know it's uh, I know. <laughs> it's been challenging trying yeah. to get together, It's uh, but I do appreciate uh, you taking the time and learning more about this project. I do. I want people to know that some really good stuff is happening and that we hopefully at some point 
point, we'll find all of us, uh, this, this will be as universal as understanding heart disease, right? You know, people understand how to prevent heart disease, how to, you know, manage Absolutely. their heart disease and, you know, what to ask their clinician, you know, asking those questions so they understand what's going on. And I think we'll get there eventually with pain and also understanding the opiate analgesics and their important role as well. Sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely. I, I think that it's, it's so important that, you know, chronic pain uh, management gets recognized. You know, it was only recently that it was actually included in the ICD, right? In the 11th, yeah. uh, in the 11th version. Uh, you know, I, I just thought of that when you said that, you know, it's, it's, it's as common or is as important as heart disease. But, you know, if you look at the ICD, it, you know, chronic pain wasn't there until recently. And I think people are recognizing that this is a, a disease in itself that, you know, requires uh, significant attention. And, uh, you know, from a medical student or a, uh, a medical education perspective, this is a, a, a great start. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal project and I think it's going to serve well. And I, and I really believe, I don't want to say with certainty, but I really believe that this is then going to extend into uh, the post-licensure phase and into CME, which is, which is so needed as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll end there, David. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Maureen. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.